welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre, with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we feature excerpts from an October 2022 interview between journalist and author Andrew Meyer and fellow biographer and bio member Kai Bird. With Bird, Meyer talked about his latest book, Morgenthau, Power, Privilege, and the Rise of an American Dynasty, published by Random House in October of last year. It's a comprehensive examination of 150 years of one of New York's most influential families. This in-person event was sponsored and recorded by the Manhattan-based Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York, and we present it today with the Levy Center's permission. Good evening, everyone, and a warm welcome to yet another biography event. My name is Kai Bird, and I am the director of the Leon Levy Center for Biography, a wholly unique institution hosted by the Graduate Center here and founded by Shelby White and the Leon Levy Foundation in the year 2007. Tonight, I am delighted to welcome Andrew Meyer, a former Leon Levy Fellow, to talk about his magisterial biography, Morgenthau, Power, Privilege, and the Rise of an American Dynasty. Meyer is the author of Black Earth, A Journey Through Russia After the Fall, and The Lost Spy, an American in Stalin's Secret Service. He has reported on Russia, Central Asia, and the Caucasus for two decades. Meyer has received numerous fellowships from the National Endowment for Humanities, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, where he and I first met 20 years ago the Alicia Patterson Foundation, and the Coleman Center at the New York Public Library. He presently teaches at the New School. But before I begin the conversation, I want to say a few words about Meyer's own biographical journey. Biography is a demanding art that requires a certain degree of obsession. Quote, writing a book is a horrible, exhausting struggle, said George Orwell, like a long bout of some painful illness. One would never undertake such a thing if one were not driven on by some demon whom one can neither resist nor understand. I know that Andrew experienced this because he spent eight long years on this project. He interviewed nearly 500 individuals. He spent hundreds of hours alone with the DA, Robert M. Morgenthau. And then he wrote a multi-generational biography of the Morgenthaus that covers 153 years. Yes, it is a very long book, but I'd like to compare it, if I may, to Robert Caro's Power Broker. It is an absolutely stunning achievement, a biography that I'm sure will be used for decades to come to understand the history of this country and New York City. I guess you can see that I like the book. <laughs> so, Andrew, let's begin with why the Morgenthaus? What drew you to this subject? We're talking about Lazarus, Henry Morgenthau, Treasury Secretary Henry M. Jr., and Bob Morgenthau. I just want to draw on a quote you have in your book where you 
quote Ed Koch saying, they were the closest we've got to royalty in New York City. Give us a thumbnail sketch of the, the four main characters. And I want to thank you for that incredible introduction. Uh, you literally took my breath away. So, uh, and you also make me sound like an, um, I went through a couple of bouts of insanity, which is not entirely untrue. Um, <laughs> we'll get into that. And I also want to thank the Graduate Center and Shelby White and the Leon Levy Center for Biography. It really is, as I was just saying um, before we started, I think it's the most democratic institution in New York. And it was a great place, actually, to write this book. It was more than a decade in the making, but I really broke the back, the spine of this book here. Uh, on what, I forgot what floor it was. It was so long ago, the eighth floor? Sixth floor. Sixth floor at the Levy Center. And it's an extraordinary place to have really written this book, particularly with so many ghosts. Many of you know this is the old B. Altman store. I actually, someone came and visited and she said, I bought my wedding dress here. <laughs> and I said, you won't recognize it by the corridors. So thank you. It began as a small undertaking, like all big undertakings tend to do. And many of uh, the historians who had come before me and had known the Morgenthaus firsthand, whatever generation generally, both encouraged me and warned me, which, of course, only led me to the river, so to speak. And uh, I had finished my second book, which was on a young man who was killed by Joseph Stalin, um, an American commentary agent who became a Soviet agent named Isaiah Sy Oggins, who graduated Columbia College in 1920 at the, the height of the, the Red Scare. And I had spent probably four years chasing ghosts. And I was sick of chasing, chasing ghosts. And I knew I, wanted, I knew I wanted to do another biography and I wanted to do someone who was still alive. And I looked around New and York City. a subject City. where there are lots of sources. Yes, and I wanted it to be a New York story. Uh, I didn't think it would be 153 years, but I was casting around, and I looked at the then mayor, Mike Bloomberg. And I was writing at the time, um, beginning to write for the New York Times Magazine. I had been in Moscow for time, and I had been going back and forth almost every year to write. Uh, from Russia for the Times Magazine. I didn't want to do another Russia book. <laughs> didn't want to do Putin. And I met the DA. And when I met him, I had been at the Coleman Center at the New York Public Library. And there, among a few other million books, they have a copy of Lazarus Morgenthau's Lebensgeschichte, written in 1842 when he was, I think, 24 years old, about to get married. And he is the patriarch. He's the first Morgenthau to come to New York. And when I read that, I thought, well, uh, this could be more than a biography of one man who I knew something about, who in New York had never heard the name Morgenthau. So one of the great problems with this book, what are you working on? Morgenthau? Everyone has a Morgenthau story. Almost everyone I met. Uh, and you wanted to listen to it. <laughs> Inevitably, there was a payoff. And when I read that book, I thought, oh, this could be a multi-generational epic. And when I met the DA, it was under the guise of doing a magazine profile. He was 89 years old. He was running again. It would have been his 10th election, and he had a slogan, 90 and 09. <laughs> <laughs> so he received me and in what has been called the largest office in New York City, and he kind of motioned to the end of the uh, long conference table. And you could tell, even then, which was his chair. There were 12 chairs around the conference table. And there was one chair uh, in worn leather. 
The chair was worn and the trestle underneath the table was worn where for 35 years he had put his feet. And he, we just talked. Uh, it, of course, was an interview. So he charmed you. He tested me. There was a vetting. <laughs> there was a vetting. There was a vetting. And I remember distinctly, it was 45 minutes, and after an hour and a half, I started, you know, as you do, you're wondering, doesn't this guy have anything better to do? <laughs> and I saw the line of assistant district attorneys forming at the door. And they were standing there, waiting. And then every once in a while, Ida Van Lint, who was his long-serving and long-suffering assistant from day one, would poke her head in and said, you know, you've got lunch, or you've got these appointments, or you've got New York One TV, someone coming. And he just, which I soon learned was his way, blithely ignored everything else. And then after an hour and a half said, are you hungry? Oh, wow. And then that was, that was <laughs> because I had spoken about his, uh, his great-grandfather, Lazarus, and that was where I think he realized this is not an interview for a magazine article, but a possible book. That's and, when you knew it was a biography. I think that's when he knew. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And then it was about eight months or so figuring out the scope of this and whether it was even feasible. And then I discovered the paper trail at Hyde Park. And well, that leads me to my next question. I, I, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about the challenges you face as a biographer. And in this book, I think the major challenge is probably just the mountain of sources, specifically Secretary of Treasury Robert Morgenthau's diaries, which come to 872 volumes with 60 million words. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Henry Jr. Uh, one, of Henry the things, Jr. one of the things our kids, we have two daughters, and they would always say, Dad, the problem with this book is there's too many Henrys, <laughs> too <laughs> which, many is, Henrys which is right? true. And so the Secretary of Treasury, Henry Jr., had what they're called the Morgenthau Diaries, and now they're digitized. When I started, they were not digitized. You would have to make the pilgrimage up to Hyde Park to the Roosevelt Library, which is a great and wonderful pilgrimage to make. And as you say, there are almost 900 volumes. Early on, and I, I can't remember who it was, it was probably just blind luck, if not intuition, I made a different pilgrimage, and I went to go see the great historian John Morton Blum at Yale. And Professor Blum did many uh, incredible things in his life. One, he, I think he taught more presidents than any other university professor in American history. He also spent a dozen years, at least, with Henry Jr., the Secretary of Treasury, after the war, when he was trying to find a historian to help him sort through that mountain you're just talking about. And he eventually and, published an abridged Three volumes? It was, it was a bridge, three volumes, and then they, they, they bridged it even further to a single volume. And it was a, something of a bestseller, because it wasn't just a diary. What it was, was, and it is, an extraordinary historical document. Everything that crossed his desk, everything that went in and almost everything that went out is there, including transcripts. So not only are the Morgenthau diaries, without getting into the weeds, there's the presidential diaries that he recorded with an Edison dictaphone after every meeting, every lunch, which he had every Monday with FDR. He would go back to his office and say, you know, these are the highlights, this is what we said, this is what the president said. And then there are even transcripts where he had a little button in his office where he would record Incredible. anyone coming in, yeah. yeah, including Joe Kennedy, yeah. So he was a, a very odd duck. Uh, one of your sources called him Eeyore because in his relationship with 
FDR, he was always the pessimist, always a little bit depressed, very cautious. He never finished high school, right? He never finished high school. He never finished college. And, and yet he was one of the longest serving cabinet members in US history. And it was Professor Blum who taught me that early on because he had spent so much years with him. He said something which I'm not sure is true, but he said, I don't think he ever read a book cover to cover. He had terrible eyesight. Uh, he was nearsight horrible nearsightedness. But that wasn't it. I think he actually had dyslexia. And Henry III, the DA's older brother, passed away at 101 recently, said, oh, there's no question. My father had undiagnosed dyslexia. And I'm not an expert in dyslexia. But what I was told was he couldn't do the minutiae, although he tried. But he did have this extraordinary capacity for looking far, for vision, in a way that FDR really didn't. FDR was making things up as he went, in sometimes in horrific fashion. And reporting and, and, and looking in the archives while we had Mr. Trump in office, sometimes I saw incredible parallels, some of which other people have noted as well in their books. FDR was making an incredible policy on the fly. But Henry Morgenthau ended up being this master bureaucrat, in part, I think, because of that dyslexia. He delegated brilliantly. He grew the, the Treasury Department, had about 18 different arms. Uh, and he delegated, and he could see where things needed to go. And of course, he was you know, FDR's, as you were saying. He was his, his uh, whipping boy, but he also was the guy who, when FDR needed to do something absolutely dangerous and, and also outlandish, he had Henry do it. He called him Henry the Morgue. Henry the Morgue, because he did have this incredible right. dark, sour face. They were glowing. neighbors, fellow farmers, and we've passed over his father, but let's talk a little bit about his father who did so much to build this city. Right. I think part of what you're saying about um, Henry Jr.'s, I guess, chippiness, it's a good English word, he was incredibly chippy. He was very suspicious as well. Um, he was intelligent, but he had a serious father complex. Henry Sr., Lazarus's middle son, Lazarus, who was the patriarch who came uh, to Brooklyn in 1866, um, had been a cigar baron, uh, a very successful cigar baron, uh, who had grown up with nothing, orphaned early in the south of uh, Germany. Lazarus comes to New York penniless because of the Lincoln Tariff Acts of the Civil War and he lost all of his money, almost all of his money. He was lucky enough that he could sell his mansion in Mannheim, which was one of the biggest mansions then. He did come with some money. They lived in, in Brooklyn, about two blocks from where uh, we now live, in 1866. Moved to Manhattan. Henry Sr. becomes the all-American boy. Uh, he's the middle of nine sons, and decides that he's gonna do everything that his father did not do. His father was a gambler, not literally a gambler, but a risk taker, an inventor, this incredible shapeshifter. When I first uh, met the DA, I knew very little about Lazarus other than what he wrote in his own life story, his own diary when he was in his 20s. What I learned, though, over the years, looking at um, really in the archives of the Library of Congress, is that he was probably the most fascinating character and one of the most fascinating characters of 19th century in New York. There is a movie to be made about Lazarus Morgenthau. And even, I recently was reading a memoir of someone from the 1920s, and he describes this man uh, sitting in the park 
who spoke with a, very little English, with a heavy accented German, but wore this impeccable outfit, always with a Prince Alfred, and the white cravat, which he used to make by hand. And that's Lazarus Morgenthau. Uh, but he ended up in an utter failure, living alone. And I said, as I hope it's clear a in the book. A little bit off, a little bit crazy, very eccentric. And his son, the one we're talking about, has real father issues with yeah. him, right? Yeah, I mean, and with, with good reason. Uh, he was eccentric, but if you read the family letters close enough, you'll see that he, they actually had him committed to an insane asylum, an institution in White Plains, and Henry Sr., his son, had to hire the Pinkerton Agency to keep him away during his wedding. Uh, because they were worried. Right. And there was abuse, and there was with his mother. Uh, Family he, politics is always complicated. Yeah, and <laughs> so. this spilled out into the pages of the New York Times and into the pages of the German press, which was this boiling German press at the time. But it, the long story short, <laughs> in terms of Henry Sr., is he goes to Columbia Law. At that time, you could go um, without a college degree. He was forced to quit City College because of Lazarus, errant ways. He goes to law school. He starts his own firm, rather miraculously, with two friends, three young Jewish men in, in their mid-20s. And he begins to build, buy real estate. And he starts buying real estate. Yeah. And he takes on the Astors. He takes on everyone he possibly can. Yeah, he's and, a brilliant and, developer and creates the family fortune. So. Right. And married and his, very well. His son yeah. is this high school dropout, college dropout, who then decides he wants to become a gentleman farmer happens to buy this property next door to FDR, and they become good friends. <laughs> yeah, and throughout all of that is the specter of the father hovering very close. Yeah. And in fact, I found a letter where the son, Junior, says, the reason why I want to go to farming is because it's the one thing you know nothing about. <laughs> right. So um, there's a, an interesting generational theme here between the Henry Morgenthau who becomes appointed ambassador to Turkey, the father of the gentleman farmer. He's only there for two years, but famously he reports on the Armenian genocide in graphic detail. And these reports become very controversial and he, he's the, still the major source of, uh, for many historians today of what happened to the Armenians under the the young Turks. And then his son becomes treasury secretary, uh, improbably, and grapples with the same kind of genocidal issue with regard to World War II and the Holocaust. So talk briefly about this symmetry. It's one of the main themes of the book. And it's something that actually that tied the treasury secretary to Roosevelt. It was, they were gentlemen farmers. They weren't quite neighbors, but they were the only two Democrats. They liked the joke in Dutchess County. Uh, they went on long campaign trips upstate. Henry Morgenthau's role in winning New York for Roosevelt and when he was coming back from polio is uh, an extraordinary tale that really ha hasn't been appreciated. And he becomes, as you say, improbably, he himself was shocked. Uh, to be named Secretary of Treasury. Uh, he didn't start that way in 1933. And they did a lot of things together, some reckless, uh, some radical, although Henry, as I think you can gather by his nature, was very conservative. 
He wasn't really a new dealer in the economic sense at all. He kept saying, what about the taxes? <laughs> what about the deficit? Right. It kept him up at night. But Germany, literally from the very first days after Roosevelt is inaugurated, the two of them, it's underappreciated how much FDR understood Germany. He had gone every summer as a young boy. And there were two things which stuck in his mind. The martial spirit, the drumming in the uniforms. FDR, almost until his death day, is saying, we got to stop the drumming and the uniforms. This had a very strong impact on him as a young boy. And there are notes where they're passing to each other in the cabinet meetings where Henry uh, sat right to Roosevelt's left in the cabinet meetings and in their weekly lunches. He says in the spring of 1933, when very few Americans had even heard of Hitler, he says, what are we going to do about Germany? Morgenthau asks FDR. Yes, and I remember looking in the, in the, ar- in the uh, microfilm in the archives, and Roosevelt says, Henry Jr. says, do you think there will be war? Uh, oh. Late winter, 1933, early spring. And FDR says, probably yes. Right. And that is the theme that came up again and again. It ties to the father because uh, senior, FDR had a convenient way of distinguishing two. He called him Uncle, Uncle Henry. Uncle Most Henry, of the Democratic yeah. Party, because he was Uncle Henry with the money bags since the Wilson campaign in 1911. So Uncle Henry's fear was based on his own knowledge since the 1890s, when he had been in Germany, of this kind of martial spirit. He had seen the Kaiser in Kiel, in the Prussian capital of Kiel, as a young man. And he, too, and through his friend Adolf Ox, is annual, almost annually giving interviews saying, watch out for Germany. And this absolutely resonated with the Secretary of Treasury. So at one point you write that in, by the winter of 1943, Secretary Morgenthau's men, quote, had the goods on the old guard at the State Department, meaning the largely political appointees who were blocking immigration, were blocking any attempt to rescue Jews, But, quote, the trouble was that they had ensnared their own boss as well. Can you explain? Much like um, what happened during the Armenian genocide, with one marked difference, the ambassador to Constantinople, the sublime port, as it was known then, was receiving a flood of consular reports from US consuls who were in uh, the regions across Turkey and as far as Aleppo, Syria, testifying to the horrors of the Armenian deportation and then mass murder, as well as Christian missionaries, American missionaries, and others. And they were all landing on the ambassador's desk. At first, he didn't believe them. He actually writes, this is unbelievable. And he's also friends with the Young Turks. Friends is too strong a word. But he sees them. They go for dinner. He's also is friends. They go on horseback rides with the German ambassador. And he's beseeching them, saying, can this be true? And almost initially, he takes their word for it. And of course, the tide turns, and he has a crisis. And then he confronts Woodrow Wilson, Secretary Lansing, and says, this is the mass murder of the Armenians. Cut to the height of World War II, the summer of 1942, which we, uh, we now know it was not on the front pages of the New York Times, but we now know that's when the mass extermination really started, beginning in 41, but by the summer of 1942, it's inescapable. And 
Henry Morgenthau sitting in Washington. Uh, his best friend, of course, is FDR. He's not the only, but he's the most prominent Jewish member of the cabinet. It's a place he doesn't want to be, despite Eleanor Roosevelt, his wife's very, very good friend, saying, Henry, you are FDR's, you are the president's, Franklin's conscience. And she didn't say that lightly. She meant it. And he is confronted with reports, specifically of the final solution. And it's a slow accretion of evidence, which, as you say, first, the uh, diplomats stationed in Europe do not want to transmit. And then in Washington, there's an absolute conspiracy to silence it and to sit on it and quash it. And Henry is not going to run across the 300 yards the to the Oval Office. He, yeah. he, he doesn't want to have to do this, but he musters the courage to actually challenge his best friend and persuades him in the end. Yeah, it's an, extraordinary moral, it's an extraordinary moral drama, almost Shakespearean, because what I had read when I started the research was, you know, he led the charge and he brought Roosevelt to bring, you know, to understand what was going on with the Holocaust and the Jews, and they had to act. That's actually not true at all. Uh, he gets there eventually, but it was four young men under him, New Deal, who were ideologues. John Paley, among others. And yeah, who, and they were all lawyers who uh, Morgenthau had brought in. As I said, he was a famous delegator. He trusted their opinion. He, let the, you know, he brought in the best and the brightest and delegated. And they came to him and said, Mr. Secretary, we have to do something. And they then uh, write the famous report which initially was titled The Report on the Acquiescence of This Government in the Murder of the Jews. And that was too much for Henry. So it becomes a report to the president. Right. It but was, he succeeds in persuading Roosevelt at a very late stage, in January of 1944, to establish the War Refugee Board. And I think most historians agree that maybe as many as 200,000 lives were saved thereby because they actually used government resources to try to set up rat lines to rescue people. And so it was something, but it was... Uh, it was too little, too late. Yeah. And he had both, uh, both political anguish, but he also had real physical. I interviewed his daughter, Dr. Joan um, Morgenthau, and she was living in Washington at the time. And she said, she was going to school there in high school, and she said, my father had terrible migraines his whole life, but during what he called these terrible 18 months, he couldn't sleep. There was real moral and physical anguish. And he was going to confront his best friend. I mean, FDR was the sun god, not just for the whole country, but specifically for, for Junior. Yeah. So that brings us to talk a little bit after, in April of 45, just as the war is ending, uh, Secretary Morgenthau attends his first Passover Seder. <laughs> I was sort of shocked by that. That was his first Seder? Well, in his own words, uh, there may be those who dispute that, but I was shocked. As I said, he would dictate. Uh, I think they call it the ediphone. And he dictated uh, one son, the future DA, um, was first in the Mediterranean and then in the Pacific. He was uh, a highly decorated naval officer. He actually joined the Navy when he was 20, when he was still at Amherst College. Other son, Henry III, was with General Patton in Europe. And he would dictate to them, and being the Secretary of Treasury, the ediphone, I think they were actual discs, would arrive. And he said, 
boys, I just have to tell you, I went to the most wonderful thing um, in Daytona Beach. They call it a Seder. <laughs> <laughs> and I had the same reaction when I read that. Yeah. So they weren't practicing Jews. It's a very, very complex issue. <laughs> As I said, I had spent several years chasing people like Isaiah Oggins, who were Russian Jews. Uh, German Jews, especially the German Jews of Manhattan of this generation, the relationship to Judaism is extremely complex. Um, Uncle Henry, the senior, who was the real estate baron, became the most vocal, prominent anti-Zionist in America. Yeah, he actually advised his son at one point, don't have anything to do with the Jews. So, that was when he was almost dying. That was when he, right. much later, yeah. He has an extraordinary evolution. Uh, in his relationship to Judaism. And many Jews, many German Jews, became Christian scientists uh, at the turn of the century. He founded with Rabbi Weiss, the most uh, charismatic and prominent rabbi and, and leader uh, of the American Reform uh, Jewish community, Stephen Weiss. They founded what they called the Free Synagogue, which was going to be pewless and dewless, which is a, was a direct public swipe at Temple Emmanuel, the cathedral on Fifth Avenue. Long story short, very long story, he goes through an evolution. Uh, he visits the Holy Land when he and was he ambassador. And he becomes a Zionist. And he becomes a Zionist he's in, in a certain way. He was Lazarus. Um, it's another thread that goes all the way back to uh, the little town of Bamberg in what is today southern Germany, that they were devoutly ecumenical. They would Lazarus, when he made money as a cigar uh, in his cigar factories, gave a portal to a Catholic church, gave a bell to the Protestant church, gave money to the free thinkers. And what got him into a little bit of trouble here in New York City is that he was starting business, as he called a business, the Golden Book of Life, which was to, after the High Holy Days, to inscribe yourself in the Book of Life for the coming year. He sold these as philanthropic books. <laughs> right. And they, it was quite a good business. It was quite a good business. It was a little weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, All right, I want to spend the last few minutes of our conversation talking about the DA. You know, you spend a, a good part of the book, I, I'd say a plurality of the book on the DA, and I sense your deep admiration for him and... He comes alive as a real character, very complicated. You get into his family life, his marriage, the tragedy of his wife dying of cancer early, his second marriage to a much younger woman, Lucinda Franks. Um, it, it becomes a really interesting character, and I sense that this is the Morgenthau that you admired the most. But you also are very critical of him. I mean, you know, you go through his cases, and uh, you know, you praise him for his his emphasis, his decision at, when he becomes DA to focus on white collar criminals, as opposed to violent crime, because that th those he thinks are the real criminals who create the greatest harm. But then, you know, the, you go through his attitude about civil liberties. He's not a great civil libertarian <laughs> in some of his investigative techniques. Um, he indicts Roy Cohn three times and tries him four times on the three indictments and fails to win a conviction. Uh, he goes after the mafia 
and uh, goes after the Gambino family in particular with a really complicated sting operation. And then it leads to a settlement that puts them out of business, um, forces them to sell their underhanded business, but no jail time. Similarly, BCCI, the scandal over the bank that in, in the 1990s, uh, he was relentless in going after these white-collar criminals and was fearless in going after a paragon of the American establishment, Clark Clifford. And yet, again, Clifford, for complicated reasons for his health and such, he gets off. But his life at the end is pretty much... Uh, harassed by this investigation. And then, of course, there's the jogger case, the Central Park Five. Anyway, you're very tough on him. Uh, you go into great detail about the mistakes that were made, the misjudgments, the calculations. Anyway, talk about your judgments about these. Well, it's a huge, it's a, thanks. It's a huge question. Uh, and it's 50 years of law and order in uh, New York City, and, and not just in New York City, but the US, and when you talk about BCCI, the world. And part of it is the radical revisioning that Bob Morgenthau did when he became US attorney in the Southern District in New York under JFK and Bobby Kennedy. And I entitled that part of the book, The Sovereign District. Um, it's not my title, it's what the, the alumni of that office, who all went on to a man, uh, and, and two women, I think, to become illustrious in, in their own right. And it's an extraordinary group of people. And in a way that the Secretary of Treasury also had, but he didn't inspire them the way that Bob Morgenthau did um, in the Southern District. They were fighting a war and many wars at once. And the privilege for me was to meet those men, uh, like Frank Thomas, who went, then went on to head the Ford Foundation, but was picked by Bobby Kennedy to run the Bed-Stuy redevelopment program. And uh, as a black man in the 60s, going in to work for the man every day, the hours I had. The boss. Uh, well, no, the man, meaning oh, the federal the, government. Federal government, right. He was an associate United States attorney. So I really had an education and a privilege listening to them. Uh, and one of the things that he did, he did many, many things. But I think fundamentally, he said, the buck stops here, even to Bobby Kennedy. Uh, Roy Cohn is one example, but there was also the case which I. It, it, I think I probably spent a year at least on it. It's two sentences in the book. Um, very, very quickly, Dean Landis was the dean of the Harvard Law School. And some say Morgenthau hounded him to his death. He was also, as David Nassau here, was very close to Joe Kennedy Sr. Uh, he helped write the um, SEC Act. He was, in his own lifetime, a legend, a legendary figure. He didn't pay his income taxes for several years. Little problem. And the Kennedys said, let this one go. And Bob Morgenthau, early on, as U.S. attorney, said, absolutely not. There are many, many cases like that, whether they be Democrats 
whether they be close Kennedy cronies, whether they be Jewish leaders, whether they be the president of the New York Stock Exchange, he uh, put away, um, this was his trademark. And so that the men, and they were largely men, in the U.S. Attorney's Office listened to that, and they got their marching orders. It was the motto of his, father, his grandfather's friend, Adolf Hawks, um, without fear or favor. But it became his motto. And that, that really leads all the way up through the 35 years in the DA's office. Yeah, he now, was relentless, but he was a man of complete integrity. Yeah, I mean, I think John Kerry says it. We needed more Bob uh, Morgenthau's. That's not me, that's, that's John Kerry. And he made mistakes along the way, and some cases failed, but... Yeah. Well, the Jogger case, uh, I'll, we'll get to, I'll just do two minutes on the Jogger case in a moment, but BCCI, to him, he actually, uh, you're bringing up all the themes across the generations, his father went after his own predecessor, Andrew Mellon, for a tax case, who had been Secretary of Treasury. <laughs> and it was not a pretty case. And his father absolutely believed in you have to go after. His father, as I said, when the Treasury at that time, it encompassed not only customs, but the IRS and the Secret Service, and about 15 other different divisions. So he liked being a cop. <laughs> the chippy uh, Henry Jr. who never graduated Cornell. He liked being a law enforcer, and that definitely rubbed off. Not a lot rubbed off, certainly none of the chippiness rubbed off on the DA, but that part did, the suspicion. And usually, his instinct was right. He had an extraordinary sixth sense, uh, uh, Bob Morgenthau. And so when he became US attorney, as I said, he let the Kennedys know right away, don't try anything. And then he also realized uh, that you have to do violent crime, which was the mafia, when J. Edgar Hoover said, there is no such thing there as organized no mafia, crime. Right. <laughs> it was Morgenthau who created and delivered Joe Valachi, the first man to break Omerta, um, break the code of silence, and started this war on the mafia. And the Jogger case, you know, it was a terrible problem, but he actually, you know, dealt with it. And when evidence emerged to show that uh, the wrong people had been convicted, he didn't cover it up. He investigated it and owned up to yeah, it. Yeah, it was, he could never understand. Bernie Getz was a surprise to him, the Bernie Getz case, you all remember. Mm -hmm. Talk about his sixth sense. He didn't expect the vitriol after Bernie Getz shot those young boys on the subway. Yeah. He said, little women would come up to me in restaurants and practically spit on me, literally, for not being strong enough. Um, uh, and with the Jogger case, he also didn't understand that the, whether it be the police department, whether it be those factions within the DA's office, or whether it be the press, that he didn't do the right thing on the reinvestigation in 2002 when Matthias Reyes comes forward and says, I did it, and I did it alone, meaning the, the rape and the attack on Patricia Miley. When I began asking about it, he said it was a no-brainer. When he said, I didn't learn much at Yale Law, but I learned one thing, read the statute. And the statute says, when newly discovered evidence, I'm not a lawyer, when newly discovered evidence comes forward that would have changed the juror's opinion at the time of the trial, you have to vacate. Now, how he did that, that's a sentence, but how he worked the defense, the press, uh, local civic leaders. You have a whole chapter on this. Yeah, so. and, and the police department 
how he worked all of that was, was actually his tribute. And it was Barry Scheck, the founder of the Innocence Project, who again, I was surprised, no, no great crony of Morgan does, the one person in the country we can thank for the exoneration movement. There are others, of course, who followed Barry Scheck, but Barry Scheck called me up and he said, I'm so glad you're doing this book. I said, why? He said, because Bob Morgenthau was the one man who could have done that. And he said, and, and Barry said, it has to do with his family. It goes back to his father doing the right thing and his grandfather doing the right thing. No, it's an amazing story. We're running out of time, but I, I want to quickly ask you about two other issues. Uh, the DA became convinced that Richard Nixon flew to Europe to open up Swiss bank accounts. And he was desperate to document and investigate this, but he could never prove it, I guess. But you actually, in the book, have... Yeah, it's one of, don't give it away. It's one of the gems of making it up to page <laughs> 800 and something, wherever that is. It's yeah. there. Yeah, I reproduce it, yeah. And I actually have a copy of the letter. What, what Kai's referring to, sorry to catch you off, is uh, an anonymous letter the DA got, uh, as you can imagine, a lot of information came across the transom, whether it was on the phone or people walking in. Uh, and every once in a while, uh, his memory was extraordinary. I haven't talked about his memory. His intellect was extraordinary, but his memory for a biographer. It wasn't just the Morgenthau Diaries, the 900 volumes. I had the living DA yeah. who had as many volumes in his head. And it was extraordinary. He would remember people's middle initials from 1932. He could remember not just the building that's there now, but the three buildings that were there before when there was the elevator train that went past it, yeah. Uh, but in terms of Nixon, Roy Cohn, you mentioned, was the white whale that got away. Nixon was another one who got away. And the, there's the famous, uh, I think it's a Oliphant um, political cartoon of Morgenthau wearing the Sherlock Holmes hat and the bloodhounds are running <laughs> and there's footprints and Nixon is you know, at bay and that's when Nixon fired him in 1970. And he absolutely believed that not only was Nixon a crook, but that he had the goods on him. And it was Swiss bank, he, you know, one of his big manias wasn't just BCCI, it was Swiss banking and offshore banking, something we still haven't dealt with. Right. And so he got this anonymous letter with the account and he could never prove it. So final question, why did he never go after Donald Trump? It's a good question. <laughs> Trump, and I, I address this in a whole chapter, Trump and he were friends in the way people who go to benefits and galas in New York are friendly. They introduced each other literally at the lectern. And Morgenthau in many ways had this complex, long relationship with Trump, almost as long as anyone in New York City. It's not unexpected, but it's a fact, and I needed to explain it if I can. Uh, and we spoke about it a lot in real time. And I was in the room one time, he wasn't yet president, when Donald called. Uh, one, of, one of the great um, practices of the DA was, whether by habit or intent, he made you complicit in every phone call because of the, the speakerphone. <laughs> because of the speakerphone. The speakerphone is on. And again, for a biographer, this is a dream. And it was transactional. It was a relationship that from the very beginning was transactional. And he knew the Donald thought. would contribute to his charities. Well, there were two things. Uh, he knew Fred Trump, the father. He knew Donald's sister, who was a federal judge in New Jersey. He liked him. He liked Donald. He never said he's a good guy. He said he's fun. And all of New York City was charmed by the guy who was 
a clown, the guy who was a, a showman. And knowing what we now know, we know that, of course, he was a con man and a charlatan. Um, Donald needed Robert Morgenthau a lot more than Robert Morgenthau ever needed Trump. And there were two stages. One was when you had the outer borough son of the uh, low-rise developer from Queens coming in, and it was the famous Woolman rink, the ice skating rink in Central Park. And Ed Koch said to Morgenthau, I need a cutout, and you're going to be the cutout. You get Donald to do it. I don't want to have my fingerprints on it. And Donald did it. He actually, he, he didn't do it as he said he did it. He held press conferences every day. He used the press. And the Woolman rink opened. What the DA did was, if you're going to do this, you have to do the second rink, which is a story that's really little known. And that was the rink used for PAL, the Police Athletic League. There were two philanthropies that were extremely close to Robert Morgenthau's heart. One is the Police Athletic League, which is for New York City youth, sports, and culture. And he had started working as the chairman of that in 1961 under Bobby Kennedy. And the second is the Museum of Jewish Heritage, known as the Holocaust Museum in Lower Manhattan, that he literally, again, at the behest of Ed Koch, built and chaired for many, many years. And Trump gave money to both. He said it was his money. We now know it was the foundation's money, right. which wasn't his money. But I went back again and again to Trump's people, to those who knew both men, to the chief of the investigations units, and I said, how did this work in terms of the DA's office? And we now know exactly how Donald Trump did it as president. He walked across the street to Bob Mueller and says, can't you see him this way clearly? He went to James Comey, can't you see this way through? He tried the same thing, and it never went anywhere in terms of investigating partners or failed partners. The worst that people who really look closely at Trump in New York could come up with was that he stiffed contractors. This was an open secret. But the DA and the DA's office said, we're not a collection agency. And so he would use, he would like to use, and it's in the book, my great friend Bob, you're the greatest, and the exclamation parks and Sharpies, um, used, tried to use him to investigate his partners, and it didn't work. But of course, he was blinded by Trump. And uh, he didn't think he was going to be president. He said, Like all Donald. sorts of New Yorkers were right. Well, most of the world. <laughs> Do he says Donald was surprised. Uh, he wrote him a congratulatory email. And um, I actually was unwittingly involved in that relationship while he was president. I found a photograph of the two of them together. I sent it to the DA. And you know what happened to it. It was sent on to the White House. And Donald, he never, uh, I'm told that Trump never reads email. It was printed out from my email. Oh, really? Came back with a Sharpie, Bob, you're the greatest. And when, of course, when uh, Morgenthau passed away, even though he didn't think he ever would, Trump tweeted about it. We've lost one of the greatest. Well, it's a terrific story, a terrific book. And thank you, Andrew. This Thanks. has been lovely, very interesting. That was bio member and author Andrew Meyer speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Kai Bird at a program on October 11, 2022, sponsored by the Manhattan-based Leon Levy Center for Biography. We'd like to thank the Levy Center for granting us permission to present excerpts from this interview in our series. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website biographersinternational.org
I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day. <laughs>